Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Oxygen non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Casey Pierce is a writer, editor, and stoic columnist from Metro Detroit. Her latest work is having edited and contributed content to Tim LeBond's new book, 365 Ways to Be More Stoic. And Casey is currently co-authoring the Stoicism Workbook with cognitive behavioral therapist practitioners Scott Waltman and R. Trent Codd. I can't wait to get a hold of that book as well. Casey, this has been a, a long time coming in many ways. Thank you for being here. And you are all over the place. You have a lot going on. So thank you for your time and your attention and your presence. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I think you should say cognitive behavioral therapist practitioners three times fast. <laughs> no, that was like, kind of a mouthful. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> even even CBT is like some people think you say CBD. So I want to make sure that I say all of it. And even then they don't seem to understand what it is. So there, mm-hmm. there's a lot with that. So you're in Quebec right now and mm-hmm. you guys are preparing to, and when I say you guys, You've had recent nuptials. Congratulations on that. Can you tell us about this guy that you were able to wrangle to the altar and and what all that entailed? Yeah, his name's Donald Robertson. Donald Uh, Robertson. (laughs) I think our listeners know who he is. Yes, they might. They might. So yeah, Donald and I, we had met after I listened to the audiobook of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And this was during the time of the pandemic, all the gyms were closed and I got into jogging. So I, I listened to the book and it really resonated with me. And I'm, you know, I thought to myself, well, you know, I've I've always thought this way, but I sort of called it being a mercenary. And it just made decisions easier. But I I still feel like looking back, what I lacked was a little more compassion in my decision making, um, a little more perspective. So that was the difference between me and Stoicism. And then I got into reading um, the works of Epictetus, you know, the manual, which is one of my favorites, uh, the meditations. And then I read um, Ryan Holiday's The Obstacles, The Way. So I worked in comic books for a long time, for about nine years, uh, being a writer editor. Mm. And I had started following Donald on social media. And I noticed he had a graphic novel coming out, which is now Verissimus, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. It's a beautiful book. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. Love it. It's it's tremendous. I have it up here on the wall. It's so gorgeous. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I always said it was going to make a really nice piece on a shelf or a coffee table book. <laughs> a conversation starter for sure. Um, that's illustrated by Zen Nuno Fraga. And when I saw that, I'm like, well, what are you doing in my waters? I, I want to be a part of this project. So I didn't even expect an email back. And I emailed him. I gushed about the book. The book also helped me cope with my mother's declining health. My mother has Alzheimer's. Mm. And um, she's been through the ringer. So um, Marcus's graceful acceptance of death being the opening chapter uh, really, really hit me. 
in, in a good way, in a good way. Got me coping a little more and contemplating about mortality and uh, doing death meditations and things like that. So I was like, I want to be a part of this project. I know you probably have an editor already, but even if I can do free proofreading services before it goes to print, like I'll do that. And he had sent me an email back and he said, well, after researching what you do, I see that you've written a lot of horror or you've worked a lot in uh, the horror genre. So there's some pages here that need more of a horror impact. They're just not landing. They're not scary for some reason. And so he sent me a test page and it was where Hadrian wakes up from a nightmare. You know, this is his descent into madness at this point. So he wakes up, you know, he's bleeding from the nose and he's wondering if was it all a dream. So we have this beautiful illustration of this nightmare. And then in the panel below, he wakes up with sort of bloody nose, dimly lit room, guards there. He's like, oh, was it all a dream? I'm like, eh, that's <laughs> the one thing about waking up from a nightmare is wondering, is, is actually being alone and wondering if you are still dreaming or if in fact it was a dream. So I said, cut out the lights, close in on the face. I want to see profuse blood, bloodshot eyes. I want to feel that he's going into madness and maybe some accent marks over the face. And he said, you're hired. <laughs> so I performed some content editing for Verissimus. So that burning tower that uh, Cassius has all the bodies on, that yes. close-up shot of the man crying out to his God, you're welcome. <laughs> Beautiful. Wow. That, and that's because what is that doing? That's capturing that human emotion, that that part of us. Like you say, if you wake up from a nightmare and you immediately know where you're at, you know that it wasn't true. But when you're in it and you first come out of it, you're like, am I still there? Is this real? It's very isolating. It's isolating. And that's what true horror does is that it has you feeling relatively unsafe about the world around you. You're at your reality. You know, after you see a scary film, you're wondering what's you know, behind the corner, what's under the bed. If it sticks with you, that's true horror. So yeah, you always want to feel that that rawness. Yeah. And that's what brings us back to that. If nothing else, it forces us to be present. Absolutely. Whether we enjoy it or not. And you made a comment earlier. You said that the way that you were thinking before was very stoic, but there was this mercenary component. Can you elaborate on on that verbiage? I think one of the Effect CBT methods that I resorted to a lot was imagining the worst case scenario. And I would sort of replay that over and over in my head. But these were decisions that involved, that affected other people, you know, in my reflections and looking back. And there were times when maybe I should have been more communicative and wasn't. But I was right in thinking that, well, if the worst case scenario happened, they'd get over it. But it would have hurt a lot less had I been more open and taken those steps to be more communicative about how I was feeling. So I'm really good at leaving people. <laughs> Let's just say that. In fact, I wrote a, a whole article that was probably one of the most viewed and widely shared, which was about codependency and stoicism. CBT and stoicism really helped me sort of curb those behaviors. So yes, Donald and I did get married. <laughs> We did I, was, I was like, are you, are you trying to tell me something? What's going on? I know. Like I'm going all. <laughs> no, no. I love it. I love it. No, go ahead. But no, we uh, talked about, we worked together for the greater part of a year. And after a while we, you know, conversations were not about work anymore. It was more about music and films and we just got along so great. And then uh, we met in Greece and the rest is history. I was going to say, I, the last time I interviewed him, he was over there. So that's tremendous. I'm so happy that you guys came together. And it's neat to be in this 
realm of philosophy and see how it can bring people together in a very positive way. Not just, you know, friendships, not just working together, but again, this this true connection, this marital bond is something that's beautiful. So I'm so happy for you both. Yeah, and we're, and we're building towards something too. You know, uh, Plato Academy Center became something that we're building together. Um, and Plato's Academy is virtual presence right now, excuse me, but we are going to build a conference center in Academia Platinos, which of course is where the original site of Plato's Academy was. And what we hope to do is to bring international business into Greece and sort of rebuild an area that's uh, sort of fallen derelict in the past few decades. So yeah, it's a real passion project for us. And that's what keeps us driving forward, right? If we have that purpose, if we have that kind of passion component, even whenever it's difficult, even whenever our emotion is telling us, I don't want to do this, we step back and we say, am I doing this for the right reasons? Right, right. And we were made to help one another. That's what we're here for. We were talking about how a lot of people see Stoicism and they see Stoics and they think that we are very much these people that don't have humor, perhaps even lack compassion, or perhaps we will deploy compassion for someone else, but then we will not reserve it for ourselves in some of these instances. Can you talk about some of the biggest misconceptions that you hear consistently? Absolutely. People hear the word resilience. In fact, this new book, The Stoicism Workbook, I'm writing the first chapter, and the first heading, instead of what is stoicism, says, what is resilience? Because society has this definition that it's sort of a stiff upper lip, onward march, you know, boys don't cry, that sort of thing. But resilience is bounce back how you absorb the hit. It's going to hurt, but it's how psychologically flexible are you? You know, how much are you willing to accept? Like, listen, so this event happened. There were a lot of things that were out of my control and this hurts now, but it's the choosing to get better and not suffer. So you can choose to stay where you are. And that's a very freeing notion. That's what I love about stoicism too, is that you can have a say in how much something affects you. And it is the ultimate in emotional awareness. But you can't be afraid of how much it affects you in the moment either. You know, it's okay, feel the pain, but know that it's going to be temporary and have the desire to get better and don't want to stay there. It's not going to happen overnight. Nobody expects that at all. And that's not weakness. Absolutely. It's that capacity to adapt is what it comes down to. And in the martial art, we always talk about fighters being tough. But when they're talking about that, they're never talking about the guy that can throw a punch easily because everybody can do that. It's the person that can either absorb the punishment, minimize the punishment, actually blend with the the punishment so that now it it takes some of the, the sting from the blow. And that gives us a better ability to respond, a better ability to adapt and, and come back mm-hmm. actually to be present to it, to see the opening that may be right before us. But if we allow that victimization to hit us or we catastrophize now, there's it's impossible for us to respond. Right. And premeditatio malorum helps a lot with that too, which is also one of my favorite stoic practices. You know what the hit is going to hurt, but it's just, it's a feeling. It is. And you can become inoculated to these things. And that's what the boxers are natural stoics. You are going to get repeatedly in the face. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay. And and what do we hear the stoic and the stoics are always talking about the boxer or the wrestler because those were the very first martial arts warlike. So again, boxing, wrestling, as soon as a man was able to make a fist, boxing was born. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful reality. And there's so many people, too, that this idea, almost like the, the Kubler-Ross idea of going through the, the stages of grief and understanding that, 
I love the idea with Stoicism because they accept it for what it is, but that's what allows us to, again, be free. And we can go through those stages much more efficiently. We don't try to skip them. We don't try to circumvent the emotion, but we are able to get through it a lot faster and come to that place of acceptance because anytime that we stay in that place of bargaining, that place of feeling like a victim, that place of denial, which is basically glorified bargaining, it doesn't help us move forward. It doesn't help us adapt. It doesn't help us see what the, the present moment has for us if we're going to stay in that place. And again, it's never as neat as we would like for it to be. It's never, you're in this first stage, therefore it's going to be two to four weeks depending on the person and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't work like that. But understanding that the end result is I will get through this. I will survive now that I'm here. A little bit of premeditation to that too is knowing that this is not the first or the last time you will be hurt emotionally or physically. And you are not the only person or the last person to be emotionally or physically hurt. I think that view from above sort of that grand perspective is like, okay, you know, I can get through this. People worse off than have gotten through this. So yeah, it helps us detach. It helps us understand. And what happens, right? We always want, once the adversity hits, we want to be the exception to the rule. It's easy for us to be philosophical about someone else's headache. It's like, oh, they'll get through that. Oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, that was a toxic relationship anyway. Okay. That's easy for you to say, because you're not the one that's in the ring. You're not the one that's fighting. You're not the man in the arena. If that's the case, that's when we have to really, again, be brave, have that courage to step into this and understand this will be uncomfortable. So what? Yeah, and I think you hit hit the nail on the head when you said detachment. And detachment is something we have a problem with in general. And I think that that's where CBT comes in. It's sort of nearly every discord we have within ourselves is caused by the same thing. It's trying to control the uncontrollable and being attached to that and sort of white knuckling it through life and, you know, hanging on for dear life when the soft grass is just, you know, an inch below your feet. But, you know, we suffer more in imagination and we make things out to be bigger than what they are. We make them out to be mountains that need to be scaled. And it's like, we need to desaturate that. I, I do believe in gray areas, but sometimes black and white thinking two columns, you know, that's why CBT is kind of where it's at for me. It's like, okay, let's let's desaturate all the noise that's going on in our heads and like look at the facts and not the opinions. Yeah, it's everything. And again, even if we have the the wherewithal to have the pen and paper and write down, you know, how is there evidence that this is actually harming me? Again, that's that ability to detach. Now it's no longer about me and I'm selfishly in this emotion and just lavishing in it, which it seems that's what a lot of people enjoy doing. They like having it about me, me, me. Oh, I'm the victim. Look, I can't do anything about this. Yeah. It's the most selfish, one of the most selfish acts we can really do if we're being very honest. Yeah. And it's hard because I, sometimes I feel like people don't do that willingly. They Some people don't feel like they deserve to get better. And I think that's where um, mental illness comes in. And, you know, no man does evil willingly. And, you know, sometimes people just don't know any better. But sometimes there are those cases in which people want to be too precious for this world. And that's an active choice. It is. And then there's also, as you were mentioning, controlling the controllable is key. And it seems that if we don't willfully embrace what is controllable, we flip-flop. And now we can't tell the difference between what is controllable and what is not. So then we're wasting time, energy, emotion, focus on this thing that is 
never going to be under our control. Trying to control what somebody else wants, what they think, how they feel about me or about this situation. Their perceptions. Yes, we try to do that so much. And I'm one of the biggest offenders. I think everybody is. If you can hear our voice right now, you've done it or you're doing it currently. It's Mm -hmm. about being aware of it. That gives us at least an opportunity to not be ambushed by it over and over again. Yeah. Yep. And even if they thought the worst of you, it's like, you know, we should only care what the wise person thinks of us. So always consider the source. Always. Yeah. How many times have we had people that are trying to leave no stone unturned to make themselves look more perfect or pious by comparison? But that says a lot more about them than the dirt that they're trying to uh, uncover on us, so to speak, or Mm -hmm. the classic example. Oh, that's the only you know, fault they found in me, then clearly they don't know me very well because there are a lot of other things. Right. (laughs) They would have mentioned my other flaws too. Yeah. There's some hepatitis there. That is my favorite thousand, some 2000 year old clapback. (laughs) It's like, that's all you got. Okay. I guess that's all right. I guess that's it. Is Epictetus your favorite? Yes, I think so. I think it's a sort of straight, no chaser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's right there. Because I, I think it's empowering too, you know, uh, find out what needs to be done and do the thing. And really, I'm all about desaturating I said, the, the noise and the clutter and the opinions that we formulate that are evidence-based. And then we sort of ride that and we ride our initial impression when it's really like, okay, you want to do this thing? Well, then first of all, you know, you're going to only speak when necessary because you have two ears of only to listen. And you're going to absorb it or you're not, you know, you can do anything, but any goal that you see, you know, I mentioned this in my Instagram post today about weight loss, the mountain that you've made it, you've made it a mountain. It's not a mountain to be scaled. It's just something, if you want to do it, then do it, then do it. And don't psych yourself out. Don't be overwhelmed by it. You know, stay in the present moment control what you can control. And you know, not every day is going to be great, but you're going to get there. Just always have the end goal in mind. Yeah, in the military, that's what I was, in my mind, I was always reminding myself of this. This is a 25-mile ruck mark with 100 pounds on my back. Don't make this worse than what it needs to be. I already have enough weight on me. Why would I continue to just add to that? Why would I tax myself unnecessarily? Mm-hmm. And yep. being able to take that accountability and responsibility because there were guys next to me under under their breath, they're like, this is stupid. I can't fucking believe we're doing this. This is bullshit. It's like, we're going to have to do it anyway. Yeah, they're causing their own suffering. Yep, yeah, they can, absolutely. They're putting that emergency brake on as we're trying to hit the gas going up the hill. It's like, why are you doing that? It makes no yeah, sense. This is all temporary. This is all temporary. Remind myself, you know, that's something I noticed about my father. He uh, served in the Army in Vietnam. And there's a bit of stoicism in him. It's the fact that he does not catastrophize. He never has. He always has done what is necessary. And he, I'm not saying like he's emotionless. My father is very emotional. But yeah, he, I think he always reminds me of that stoic quote. Just, uh, you know, find out what needs to be done and then do it. Yeah, stop blabbing about it. My, my great uncle was in Vietnam as well. And outside of my father, he was my biggest male role model. And when my parents were divorced, he was my male role model from 8 to 12. So taking me hunting, helping me embrace these small micro adversities of cold, of being wet, of being a little bit uncomfortable. And I remember looking up at him when we're in the the rain and in the snow waiting for the deer to come by. And I'm shaking and I'm pouring the tea on me instead of in my mouth. And I look up at him and he's just this pillar, right? He's just looking at the tree line. And I don't want to make him, I don't want to let him down. But I'm like, uncle, because he looks down and he's like, are you cold, boy? And I was like, a little bit. I was like, aren't you cold? And he said, yeah, I am. He said, but uh, I'm going to tell you a secret. 
And then he kind of looks at the wood line and he takes like a sip of his coffee and he's like, do you think the cold cares about you? Mm-hmm. And even at 12, I was like, no, he's like, exactly. He's like, the cold doesn't care about you. You shouldn't give it as much attention as what you are. Yes. And he says, if you focus on what we're doing out here, the purpose, the hunt, he's like, that's all you will focus on. But if all you focus on is the cold and the hardship, that's all you will ever see. Yes. Once you embrace the uncomfortable, you can become inoculated to it. That's it. And you do it over and over and over and over. Right. And that just becomes who you are. Yes. And he also pointed out the fact that, listen, we're already out here. We're already cold. We're already what? We've already paid the price. Mm-hmm. Being in this place where you are now, which again is sort of a victim, even if we see a deer, he's like, you're already mentally a step behind. Your hands are cold. You can't shoulder your weapon. You'll never be able to sight him properly. You'll jerk the, the trigger. You'll miss the shot. And all of this will be for naught. Yeah. yeah. And so even at 12, and again, he was in long range reconnaissance patrols in Vietnam, special forces, drop behind enemy lines, all that stuff. So I can only imagine knowing what I know about him now after he's passed away, that to him, that was just like a small exercise, didn't even, wasn't even a blip on his radar. But yet to me, it influenced everything that I did from there on out. And so he's like, there's a fireplace and there's the hunt. He's like, the fireplace will always be there when we get home and we can have hot cocoa and milk and cookies no matter what happens out here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, but your opportunities to hunt, those are limited. And it just became this beautiful, again, he never, stoicism is built into the military. It's built into any martial capacity, in my opinion. The people that were at Thermopylae very much were just living in, in that stoic philosophy. Having said that, it gave me a lot more understanding, not only what I was capable of, but again, where my mentality could or could not put me. It could either set me up to win or it could put me in a place where all I was doing was bitching and moaning about, you know, I, I'm cold and I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And I don't know anybody that's successful in any realm that does not have discomfort in some part of their life, fatigue, overwhelm, whatever it is. And so this is why having these, these skill sets is so imperative to success or to even reaching excellence in any capacity. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think... Um, it, uh, you had me reflecting on uh, areas of my life where I tried to get to the next level, either personally, professionally, and it. I was humiliated at first, and that was my first step to growth, was uh, being knocked down and like, okay, you don't know everything. And so once I was able to admit that to myself, you know, you sort of learn. But I love the idea of embracing the uncomfortable, and the uncomfortable loses its power. It loses its grip. Yeah, once we lean into it. Because what mostly catches us is that surprise, mm-hmm. the audacity of it hitting us, the audacity, like you said, that it actually might catch me or that this may actually impact me in some capacity. Oh, yeah. We take it personally. We do. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we find the adversity. We should be surprised when we do not. Mm-hmm. And that's the mentality that we should have moving forward. And to touch back on what you were talking about with your post today, you use stoicism to help you in weight loss in a lot of ways. Can you reflect on that for us a little bit? Yeah. So like so many people, when you set out to lose a massive amount of weight, you sort of try, fail, try, fail. And that's okay. It's a very human thing. And I think I was reflecting on what was it about the last time that I tried? Well, it was my perspective. It was my judgment about it. And again, I stopped seeing it as this mountain that needed to be scaled. And I'm like, okay, I can break this down simply. All right, I need to lose like 115 pounds. Wow. Okay, if I put if I put that on the dry erase board, that looks really intimidating. 
But really, if I'm going to lose maybe, I was significantly overweight at this time and I was doing low carb. So you can lose maybe six to eight pounds roughly. So that's about nearly 10 pounds a month. So I took it like that. I'm like, I'm just going to do this 10 pounds at a time. And we think about the grand scheme. It'll take a little over a year probably. And a year is a blink in time. Think about high school. That was four years. When we were in it, it felt I was suffering. (laughs) But then after I graduated, I'm like, wow, that was it, huh? We're out. Yeah, it's a blink in time. And that's the way you have to see it. You know, this is all temporary. Embrace the uncomfortable. And yeah, and also being present too. You know, you are where you are. And that's something that you have to accept. And I think I was 275 pounds. And it would depress me to think about it. I'm like, I need to stop being depressed. This is where I'm at, but I'm not, I choose not to be here. And I think, um, so I'm 37 now, uh, when I was 27, I couldn't fit in. Now I'm, if you're, if anybody out there who is a size 20 and is happy, I'm, I'm totally all about that. And I put on my size 20 jeans and they didn't fit. And I had an honest conversation with myself. I said, okay, Casey, you are, you're either happy this way. And you accept yourself and that's fine. Or are you not happy? And I was not happy. And that's why I made that choice. So everybody else's choices are up to them. I don't dictate that. But if you are going to make that choice, accept where you're at. It's okay. You gotta be present and you gotta take it a little bit at a time. And you will look back and go, wow, it went by so fast. Yeah. If you just stay the course, stay present. And I really think that it didn't matter if I did low carb, Weight Watchers or um, what have you, what mattered was my mindset. I'm like, this isn't a mountain that needs to be climbed. This is just 10 pounds at a time. And I can do this. And once I was able to do that, I was able to go on and do other things. And I think part of it was adopting a sage, you know, looking to people that I wanted to have the end result, you know, sort of be like, I sort of adopted those traits people who were consistent is who I would try yes. to emulate. And I carried that over into my professional career too. So I used to give a, a seminar all about helping people. That's why you know, I got into the stoicism, self-help game, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I used to give marketing seminars to indie creators for their books on how to do direct sales because nobody wrote the book on this. And I was pretty good at it. And when I would open the talk, I would say, you know, I've, I have a filmed option comic book, you know, I've been invited to, you know, speak overseas, et cetera, et cetera. And I've I've done all these great things, right? And I'm not telling you this to brag. I'm telling you this because I was a massage therapist for 11 years. Wow. That's it. Wow. And that's why I believe so much in embodying the sage and also just listening because I feel like anybody can now... I'm saying that there's also a limit to that. You do have to get gain more education along the way. Of course. But there's nothing special about me. Anybody can do this. But you have to find out what you must do and do it. If that involves shutting up and listening, if that involves hearing so many people say no to your blood, sweat, and tears as if you didn't even exist, that uh, telling you that was the best medicine for me. I put myself out there and I was so frustrated and I was like, I can't sell a comic book. Nobody cares that I have a book. I thought I had arrived, right? Uh Uh-uh. No. Manage your expectations in publishing, especially. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But but I think that the 
weight loss and having, you know, lost all that weight sort of snowballed. And I carried, like you said, embracing the uncomfortable. I carried that with me throughout other milestones in my life. And I want to show other people that, yes, you can do this. You can. It's just, you know, mindset. Yeah. And again, it can be done one small step at a time, one inch at a time, one millimeter at a time. Miyamoto Masashi says that it's difficult at first, but everything is difficult at first. Mm -hmm. So once we understand and accept the fact that we are going to fall down, we are going to be told no, we are going to have some people that will laugh or say, listen, this is the 20th publisher that said, no, we don't want this book or we're not going to be able to sell this. Again, this doesn't change the fact that, again, the process, Mm -hmm. the person you became in that process is so important. When I interviewed Stephen Pressfield, you know, 27 years of abject failures, he said, before he had that book, his first book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, that was the first time he was courageous enough to kind of speak in his own voice. I mean, that was an entire just odyssey of being in the wilderness. But yet, he said the first book came out when he was 52. He's almost 80 now. He said, anybody that's listening to this, you can absolutely do it. But if you quit, it's impossible for you to get anywhere other than where you are right now. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that about the age thing too, because I remember reading some Napoleon Hill and I think back to the late 20s and early 30s, they were talking about misconceptions about you should be at a certain place in life by the time you reach 25. And uh, most successful uh, males, especially, are the biggest successes when they're in their 50s. And it was so back then, and it's the same way now. So also manage your expectations there. And uh, yeah, I think we also... And this is one of my biggest gripes. And when people say, well, success, I mean, I don't know how to define that. I don't know what that looks like. I know what that looks like. Did you set out to do a thing? Did you do it? You're a success. Stop making it something that's like this, you know, insurmountable thing. That's something you'll never measure up to. You know, you want to own a gas station? You bought a gas station? Success. There you go. Celebrate those successes, you know? And I think that comes down to comparing ourselves to other people. We try to measure success. I think we should stop doing that. I think you should just, again, you know, do what needs to be done. If you want to do a thing, then do it. It's also part of that path. There's, again, I'm 50 now. When I was 40, I was in the military, paralyzed from the neck down, told I'd never walk again, die on the table twice. Oh my God. That was like the whole, so when you're talking about, in my TED talk, I say, at 40 years old, you're looking back on your life and you should have the success, this marriage, these two kids, the white picket fence. You should have all this established career history. But for me, I woke up in, in a bed, broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed trying to figure out what the hell do I do with my life now? Ooh. I've given everything to this, this institution to serve my country. My great uncle, as I mentioned, he passed away and then I went through a divorce. So that was like a one-two punch that just knocked me on my ass. I mean, chiropractic school at the time, you mentioned massage therapy, not that they're exactly the same, but they're very similar in this study of the human body, the looking at the holistic idea, looking at the cause as opposed to the use of symptomatology. And I was like, okay, I have no kids. I was married because in my mind, two years after I get out of school, I'm going to have my practice. I'll be serving my community with my hands. And yet now the rugs pulled out from underneath me the most important male role model besides my father has passed. I was the lead pallbearer for him. And being there with all the regalia, 21 gun salute, man after man, eulogizing him, Fulberg colonel coming up, talking about his acts of valor. And I was pretty stoic with a small S at the time because I thought that I had this stiff upper lip. But then when they played taps, 
and they folded that flag and they marched towards us and they took the right turn and they walked to my great aunt and they say, thank you for your sacrifice. We're sorry for your loss. And I just fucking lose it. Like she's actually holding me up at that point. Oh my. And here I am supposed to be strong for her. Right. Right. So at 38, I go talk to the recruiter to see what the age limit is. He says 35. I turned to leave and he said, well, how old are you? And I was like, you know, don't waste my time. Mm -hmm. But that was my idea of, I wanted to serve my country to follow in his footsteps. They would pause my doctorate degree if I went active full time. And they said, when you come back a year and a half, you're done. So in my mind, I go out, perform this duty, learn more about myself, come back, have the rest of my school pay for with the GI bill. But in this life, there's what we hope will happen what we fear will happen and then what actually happens. And oftentimes, whether it be an expectation or perception, very few times do they dovetail as we had imagined. Right. I think that uh, when the rug gets pulled out from underneath us, it's, um, you know, some people see it as a moment to wallow. Other people see it as a moment of opportunity. You know, those can be the biggest catalyst for huge change. And I say sometimes we smack the floor so hard, we bounce to new heights. Yeah, I love that. And if we're lucky, it happens over and over. It is, and it's hard for us to see the opportunity in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of discipline and experience and, and trust, frankly, in ourselves that I can exercise hindsight now and know that there's something on the other side of this. Know that I will be stronger because of this. Know that my resilience, if for no other reason, will embolden the people around me to embrace their own hardships. Mm-hmm. So like you said, that sage, that person that we can remember, and we never know who that could be. Right. Having said that, that also gives us that accountability. It's like, listen, nobody's going to do this for me. Nobody's going to come over and rescue me, even if they did. Even if somebody did rescue me, I would still be in the same position and I would need to be rescued again later on Mm -hmm. because I haven't adapted and taken that accountability. So which is more sustainable, which is more realistic? And frankly, what can I fucking control right now? And that's what we have to do in any situation that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's always asking, what am I? What do I have direct control over, and what do I not have? That's where that two-column thinking comes in. Yeah, I think it does sort of eliminate the noise, and it, it's so easy, you know, to say. But if we can be emotionally aware enough in the moment, you know, to want to actively choose not to stay in the position that we're in, we'll do that. It's a skill, though, and it takes practice. It does. It does, and you know, it's it's hard to monitor every feeling or every initial impression and people like oh that's that's monotonous but no after a while if you practice it it becomes sort of knee-jerk you know it becomes instinctive the more more you do it it's an exercise exactly and it's that's why we're practicing stoics Mm -hmm. that's why we're trying to practice this right we're forever practicing yeah forever practicing we want to embody it as much as we can but in so doing it becomes the practice in and of itself not as if it were the other way around so it's so imperative to have that humility. There's a million directions we can go with this. Are you still low carb, by the way? No, I'm intermittent fasting. I feel like that sort of gave me my life back uh, because I felt, though this is just me personally, that low carb after a while, you do, your body does get used to it. And I started to sort of fluctuate and I'm like, I don't want to feel like I'm constantly on a diet. 
And so being able to, you know, change my relationship with food and abstain and wait and really made me appreciate food all the more. Yeah. And that, that's what I do now. Donald's been intermittent fasting for years. So that always helps. It always helps to have support. Yeah. And deprivation breeds appreciation, right? Absolutely. I mean, that food. Everything tastes better. It's it does. Like it's been yep. 16 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And for me, after my injuries, I, I'm low carb still, but I didn't do it until about four years ago. And so trying to do still be physical, trying to still embrace that, that warrior component, it was difficult because, again, inflammation in the body, inflammation from the food, and then I had a hard time doing martial arts. I couldn't carry any weight on my back. Even running was out of the question yeah. because my neck was continually inflamed. But being low carb, the inflammation is pretty much gone entirely. Now I can do more things. And then when I, for me, I couple that with the intermittent fasting. Oh, that's wonderful. That's like a, a one-two punch for me. Yeah. That's a lot of discipline. Well, that's why we do it. Right. And then it, again, what does it do when you're fasting or even when you're keto, in my opinion, it gives us almost like an unfair advantage. It gives us the ability to, to reach kind of whether when you're writing, when you're in kind of that flow state, maybe you tap into things you wouldn't normally have gotten to had you not already been in that place of, of discipline, that place of a little bit of deprivation, that place of understanding that I am choosing to do this. I not say I'm fasting. I say I'm choosing not to eat, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And the Stoics ate simply too. Absolutely. It was all very simple. Mm-hmm. Just like a hunter-gatherer type stuff. Yeah, it's that's what we're made to do. I think it's so important. There's a lot of writers in our audience, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, and I have too. People are saying, I want to write a book, but I don't know where to start. Or I want to write a book, but X, Y, and Z. If you were to answer that question for somebody who, and again, I know that it comes down to there's two lines that a writer needs, right? The outline and a deadline. But oftentimes they don't have a deadline. Oftentimes it's this thing that they kind of do when they're in the mood or when they're in that place. But to write the way you have and the way you do or the way I'm trying to do, we don't offer ourselves that luxury. It has to be saying, listen, I'm working two or three hours a day on this thing. And this is how I get there. So could you start from kind of like the beginner's aspect and then talk about how you have gotten to where you are now with this ability to have this this focus patience whenever you're working on something, I guess. I think the most important thing in what you're doing ultimately when you write a book, especially a nonfiction, is that you're communicating ideas in your own voice. So read, read, read before you write um, and keep reading. And you know, do your research and also have a clear idea of what you're trying to say. So many people try to write a book that's kind of all over the place, but you have to have just one underlying message that comes through. And there's many different ways to say it. And that's why you write this big book. But yeah, don't try to make it too complicated. Some of the best books and the best films uh, come from simple catalysts. So keep it simple. And yeah, know, know what you're trying to do. And also, if you're going to, blogging helps. Blogging helps get your ideas out there. It's kind of like um, going for a lap around. You're like, okay, I said it this way, but I can also say it this way. Um, when it comes time to get published, or if you want to be published, always do your homework with the publisher. Don't blindly send out emails because it's very insulting. You know, why do you want to be with this publisher? And also find a publisher that has a hard scope 
or harder scope that doesn't just publish everything. We publish self-help books. We publish philosophy books. We publish, you know, or horror books. You know, try to find somebody that's going to, that has an audience that caters to you. And I think the best piece of advice, life advice I ever got was when I was at a book convention in Indiana and my friend Greg was outselling me. And my editor at the time loved push buttons. He just loved to. And he's like, Casey, Greg's over here outselling you. And I turned around with tears in my eyes. I said, of course he is. I haven't sold a book in two hours. And he was like, oh my gosh, like the look of remorse on his face. He grabbed me by the shoulders, rushed me through the crowd, out to the docks. <laughs> he said, Casey, for one thing, you need perspective. He's got like five books, you have one. And number two, he goes, you need to stop seeing it as you that you need thousands of people buying your work. You need the right 500 to follow you. Know who your right 500 are. So that's what I tell everybody. You know, you have to know who you're talking to and make that connection. And the connection, that's how small empires are built. And I think blogging also helps to find that audience and find your voice. You know, and don't try to sound like everybody else, just sound like you. Just remember that you are trying to communicate ideas. It's finding that voice, like you said, is what allows us to find that audience. And if we don't know who the hell we are, then how are they going to know who we are, right? If we are trying to sound like different people. Right. We call that the brand. Yeah. You always want to be on brand. I was going to say, whether you like the term or not, it's the truth, right? Yeah, absolutely. And brand comparison is great too. Going back to Too Precious for This World, there's some people who are like, well, my book isn't like anything like that or like anything else. I'm like, yeah, it is. It is. There's nothing new under the sun, different ways of doing it. Embrace it, you know? Yeah. And the brand is very important. The brand will evolve, but always try to stay true to it. That way your audience can find you. Yeah. They need at least some commonality to come back to that gets them interested in the first place or keeps their attention as you continue to evolve and grow. Because as we do, so too will our audience in some capacities. And what is it? Uh, Kevin Kelly talks about a thousand true fans, right? About this notion of, you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of people. You just need to have that thousand people that will support you, whether it be a $200 product, a live event, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that will give you enough money to survive and the ability to rediscover and better discover who you are, what that voice is, what the scope entails. And instead of trying to make it a broader, just like you're saying, let's let's get down to the like micro level. Let's really get down to the minutia. Let's get down to the little parts of it that really hit people. And that's when we're able to really not only understand more of what we're trying to say, but that person understands, wow, it's almost like they're in my head. It's almost like they're having the conversation. You know, when we straw man something back and forth and now we can say, you know, we say something definitively in a statement and then there's people that will come back and say, what about this? What about this? What about this? Mm -hmm. Again, if we can kind of get in front of that, we take some of that gravity out. So now it's not something that seems to derail what we're trying to convey in the process yeah absolutely absolutely there's sort of a a clear uh linear path and that's what you want and it's hard in publishing because a lot of this is non-linear you know people get into it all different ways but once you do get in it try to carve out some sort of linear path for yourself you know make it easy on yourself yeah keep it simple and then also understand that even if you bleed onto the page and you bring it to a publisher or an agent and they say this is great but we want to change this part of it Again, manage the expectation, right? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. The editing process uh, did worlds for me as well. And it's, it's painful. But, uh, you know, growing pain should never stop for the writer. And you cannot take things personally because these people, I mean, Gary Reed, he was the uh, editor-in-chief of Caliber Comics, who published Spawn. And uh, he was a mentor of mine before he passed away. And he, when I first sent him my book, my very first book, Pieces of Madness, I mean, he just tore it shreds. But, you know, in the end, he said, listen, kiddo, I know you're going to get better. And the only reason that I did this is because I can see something in you. Yeah. If you want to get better, then you're going to heed to what I say. And I'm grateful to have been torn apart by the best. (laughs) You know, he was a great man. But yeah, editors, it's wild that I got into editing after a while because I did take the editing process so personally at first. But um, once I learn to accept edits and uh, work with multiple editors. It made me a better writer. And I started seeing it as education more than anything else. It made me who I am. I'm the product of a lot of editors and then I became an editor. So, yeah, And that gives you a a big advantage whenever you write as well, Mm -hmm. in in my opinion. And then even Tim, when I interviewed him, he was very complimentary about you and uh, the capacity for you to reflect back and forth and you give him a different angle or another avenue of approach and, Again, it was enlightening, and then it showed him that while I could actually reach a broader audience, or this could be more succinct to this specific audience by a lot of the suggestions that you had. So he was. Oh, that's very nice to hear. Tim is excellent, and Tim provided me with a wonderful opportunity, and to rebrand myself. And doing 365 ways to be more stoic. When I got sharper at communicating ideas that were more relatable, it was all from like a personal place. So then I was asked to do the Stoicism workbook to co-author it with two CBT therapists. And so I reflected on that. Like, so CBT therapists are the therapists first and writers second. And so I am the lay person and I am the pro client. And now I have rebranded myself as such. So I should write a book that just says like, I screwed up so you don't have to. <laughs> there it is. Let me save you time, money, and heartache. You know, here's 30 years of experience into this singular book. Absolutely. And, that will, uh... and I, in my blogs, um, I sort of do that. I'm like, the reason I'm writing this is to save you this heartache because, you know, I've been there. And I joked with my husband. I said, sometimes I feel like Seneca because all my letters are to my friends, whether they read them or not. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, what good is... Uh, Learn new things if you can't share it with other people. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's a reinforcement to ourselves about what we're learning and trying to teach. Yeah. And it's the right way of saving people, not the toxic way, (laughs) which I learned the hard way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to be saved. Right. Exactly. And I think uh, I turned my biggest weakness into my biggest strengths. Of all the things that I've seen in people that are high accomplished in their environments, the people that are at the top of their game, they've all encountered some sort of significant adversity and gone through it and then gotten stronger. Can you share with us an adversity that you went through that at the time you didn't think you were going to be able to get through it, but once you did, when you were able to look back in hindsight from this place, once the wound had either healed or you were further from it, that you were able to find either a skill set or a gift or a knowledge within that that you wouldn't have been able to find any other way? Yeah, absolutely. Codependency. Uh, decades of it decades so yeah I think 
it was one of those things where you look back at like the last, you know, 20 years of trying to save people, trying to take care of people and this frustrating, you know, grip of trying to control people's perceptions that you don't realize you're doing. You march into that therapist's office and you're like, why does this keep happening? Why? You know, and I think once you have the humility enough to find out the why, then everything else just sort of clicks. Yeah, it's one of those things that when I write about these things, it's also me working through it and trying to um, use, because it's not, as I express in my articles, it's not a, it's not a, a mental illness. It's, it's a trait. It's a strong personality trait. And you don't need to be cured of it. And that's, I think, the most relieving thing that my therapist ever said. I was like, listen, so I feel like it's something you need to be cured of. There's a lot of upsides to this. You know, you're a reliable person. You know, you're a leader. And, uh, you know, you're really good at taking care of people. And you genuinely care. And so I took that and I'm like, okay, how can I use this for good? And that's when I started, you know, blogging and trying to be as vulnerable as possible. And if only to help other people in the same boat. And also to realize that they might have this personality trait too. And that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily their fault. You know, we are products of our environment. Um, But, you know, it doesn't help to stomp, holler, and scream either because that's only going to make the situation worse. You know, just realize that, you know, you were brought up in a place where people were doing the best with the emotional intelligence that they were granted. And there you go. And then use it as catalyst to become a better person and help other people. So I'm very grateful for the decades of trying to control the perception of others and caring what other people thought and uh, going through that pain. And yeah, and that, you know, this is something that I can use for good. I think, again, your biggest weakness can become your biggest strength if you're willing to be vulnerable enough. I think it's my opinion. It's exactly what happened to me. And Oftentimes, the mistake that we make is not adapting our behavior from the mistake that we acknowledge. We, yeah. we see it. We see the pattern. That's not a big deal. Or we justify it. And even serial killers justify their their actions. So there's doesn't mean that we can just continue to lean into that, that cognitive bias. Right. Or, or we can, but again, then we have the audacity to be surprised when we find the same patterns or run into the same problems. And we don't understand why we just keep hitting our, our heads against this brick wall. So... It's so important to do that. And I also love that you reflected that this is something that was difficult for you, but yet not only have you gotten through it and you've been able to turn it into something powerful, but anybody can do that if they're willing to stare nakedly at their inadequacies, the flaws, because we all have them. Mm-hmm. Especially when we're under any kind of hardship, it really amplifies those things. It shines a bright light on the chinks in our armor. But if we can have that courage to stay in it just for a second, we can learn so much about ourselves, like you said, in the blink of an eye, almost like those four years from high school or the four years in college or a failed relationship. It can be there if we're willing to be present to it and have that humility to really understand what it is mm-hmm. and be honest with ourselves. And that's and to say, hey, this directed the course of my life because I let it for years and years and years. So I'm here to tell you that <laughs> I, do, I did not do that. But yeah, and it's it's amazing how once you um, dissect that, you can dissect other things like, uh, you know, being able to forgive people and that no man does evil willingly. And I think that was the hardest thing to swallow for me about stoicism was that, you know, you have to consider that these people don't, everybody feels justified in the moment and what they've done. And so to even to place blame, it doesn't feel good 
anyway. So why do it? You know, right. and the, the past is gone. It's out of here. So fool's errand, right? To continue to just try to place blame or again, it, we, we can all sit back and, and point fingers at these different things, but it comes down to, okay, I'm here now, irrespective of what got me here. Where am I going to go forward? Or am I going to continue just going to this loop? And I believe that not knowing that there's a loop in the first place is what, again, gets us caught, gets us stuck in that thing. And we somehow think that if we run faster or harder, I think that especially in today's society, whether it be anxiety or whether it be this, again, this people pleasing or trying to keep up with the Joneses, a lot of times people think that if they try harder or they push more or if they give more, they try to outrun it. That's that's it. And all it does is make it go faster. Right. You have to understand it first. And even the weight loss thing, you know, if you, if I sat and dissected it, you know, it's like, well, why I'm here now? Why am I here? Well, anywhere you're at is a result of the choices that you've made. And it's a combination of that. And that, you know, I've tried to understand the science behind it. Every time you eat processed carbs, you know, you get a high from your pancreas secreting insulin. And that's what's happening over and over and over. So I'm like, okay, so I'm an addict. <laughs> I always joke about Thanksgiving that it's just getting high with the family. <laughs> <laughs> Between the sugar and the tryptophan, nobody has a chance. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But yeah, that helps too. So know where you're at, try to understand where you're at and then go from there. Wise words. Casey, if you were to direct us towards anything, where can we learn more about you? Tell us about your Substack. Tell us about the 365 Tell us about your new books. Tell us where we can come learn more about you, support you, and everything you're doing. Yes. Awesome. So 365 Ways to Be More Stoic, which is very much uh, in the vein of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. It's a culmination of daily uh, stoic inspiration uh, entries. But the thing that makes this sort of uh, different than most devotionals or daily entries is that every few entries has a CBT exercise because both Tim and I believe that if you are going to adopt a whole new framework to your outlook, it's something that needs to be actively practiced, like you said, practicing Stoics. And we make no bones about saying that, or I don't anyway, cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most efficient ways to apply Stoicism to your everyday life. Even if you're going to cherry pick and just choose certain exercises, that's fine. You know, I'm not here to dictate anyone's perception, but, you know, whatever helps. So 365 Ways to Be More Stoic is available um, internationally uh, via Kindle on Amazon. Uh, The hardback is available in the UK. The hardback release for the U.S. will be in April. And, well when this podcast will release. Uh, so there's perfect timing, perfect timing. So it should be available now on Amazon. And then uh, on Substack, Casey Pierce, um, I believe it's sack.caseypierce.com. If you just look up my name, you can find it. And then I'm on Medium as well, Casey Red Pen, Casey with a K. And yeah, I'm sort of, I'm floating around on Twitter, Instagram. Book with Scott Waltman and our Trent Cod is due to release late 2023. But I'm always putting out excerpts from the chapters on Twitter. If you want to follow me on there, it's Cosmic KC, both with Ks. Beautiful. I love it. And maybe I can get connected with those gentlemen as well, and we can have them on and talk a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I would love to introduce you. They are swell guys. They, they are incredible at what they do. What I find is that when you find great people, they have great people around them. So it's any anybody that you guys are involved with, I, I would love to support in some capacity. So. Awesome. We appreciate you. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time, for your vulnerability, for your honesty, and for everything you're doing to take this, what used to be hardship for you and turn it into a superpower to help others. Well, likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.